Welcome back in everyone to a fabulous new episode of Whisper in the Wings. We are so excited to be bringing you today's episode because we have a wonderful guest. Joining us today, we have the author, screenwriter, film director, producer, man of many hats, Tom Avitabale. He's here to talk to us about his new book, Ask Not, which currently is available on Amazon, but keep your eyes peeled. It's going to be coming to bookshops all around the country. This is a fantastic thriller. It's a wonderful story. We cannot wait to share it with you. And we can't wait to welcome on our guest. So why don't we go ahead and do that? Tom, welcome to Whisper in the Wings from Stage Whisper. Thank you. Do we have to whisper for the whole show? That's the question. Oh, please. No, 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 no. All right. Good. Good. That would hurt. <laughs> that would really hurt. How are you? How's it going? I'm so good. How are you doing today? I'm living, I'm living the dream, babe. Got a great book out. Got great people working with me. Got my next book in the oven here, bacon. You can smell it. It's, it smells like a thriller. It's really good. And, you know, it's a beautiful day out. And if you don't hear the guy hitting the pile driver about 300 yards away from me, we'll be good. But if you hear <laughs> pound, 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 that's not me. You gotta love the tri-state area, right? It's it's the beautiful sound of it. All we now need is a cop car to go by and you've got the you know national anthem for the area. You'll win. I, I forget who it was. Was it Oscar Wilde or somebody else who said, New York's a great town if they ever finish it? <laughs> that was back in like 1890. <laughs> I love that. Well, of course, we are here today to talk about your book, Ask Not, which I'm so excited about. In, in doing a little bit of research, I, I was sold. I'm, I think anybody who is a thriller fan or even a conspiracy fan, and most importantly, a JFK fan. This is for them. So can we start by having you tell us a bit about what Ask Not is about? Well, Ask Not is a murder mystery suspense set against the backdrop of the JFK assassination. So you've got the crime of the century as the backdrop for the crime of the book (laughs) that we're trying to solve. So these two forces kind of intermix and our our hero hank larson who's an airline pilot is trying to clear his brother's name and his brother was involved with some kennedy assassination paraphernalia and bad things happen and he on his search to figure out what happened he runs into the entire cottage industry of jfk conspiracy theories some which make you go hmm and some which make you go nah never happened but they're all out there and wading through them both for me in research and for my character in the book is the fun part of the book and i say fun because there's nothing like a nice warm conspiracy to wrap yourself up in while you're reading and everybody has a kind of fetish for this it's like you know very few people say well i really think i don't i have no opinion on jfk i really don't and then when they they turn around and go but I think it was Oswald, or I think it was the CIA, or anything else in a stage whisper, by the way. So you get you people reveal themselves from that perspective. But it's to me, it was just a lot of fun. And I think the character starts off like, they're all crazy, and winds up with, maybe not. Of course, there's a big reveal in the book, which I can't give away now, because my publisher would shoot me and then it would have another crime of the century on top of Anyway, I love that. Though. That is such a great snob. I mean, I'm sold. I cannot wait to dive into this. I'm curious to know, 
Where did you come up the, with the idea to write this book? Okay, well, in 1972, this is going to be a long story, so you might want to sit back and get a coffee. In 1972, I really looked into the whole JFK thing in earnest, okay? And, uh, you know, I was dabbling in it. In 1993, I wrote a screenplay. And the screenplay was called Ask Not. Funny how that works out, because that's the name of my new thriller, Ask Not. Well, my screenplay, I got to speak to a lot of people who today are veter, you know, veterans of the JFK conspiracy world. For example, I had as a consultant on my screenplay heading for a film I'd raised half the money was Robert Groden. Robert Groden is the gentleman who in 1975, 76, a little cloudy, gone on the Geraldo show and showed this Apruda film to America for the first time. For 12 years, America was in a kind of coma as it related to JFK. Nobody had seen the film. And Robert Groden was the one who brought it to a national audience on Geraldo Rivera's Good Night America show. And that was the first time America saw what happened, which was then popularized in the JFK film by Oliver Stone with the famous line, back into the left, back into the left. By, in which, by the way, as he was a consultant for me, Robert was also a consultant for JFK and for Oliver Stone. And Oliver gave him a small part as one of the Trauma Room 1 emergency doctors. I banged into a couple other people along the path of the JFK world, the JFK cottage industry. And my interest began to really bubble. So I had this screenplay. And the screenplay was, was exactly about a guy who finds something in, in Dallas on that day, brings it home 30 years later, figures nobody cares anymore goes to reveal it, and everybody who touches this thing dies. And that was the screenplay. And I had raised money for, here's a funny story. I was raising money for the film, and somebody sent me to this wonderful man who was a big day trader, and he lived out on Long Island, and his entire, his entire office was above a 12-car garage that he built. He had his own zip code and his own FedEx box. And when I walked in, I knew I was going to get my money because on the wall, with the fender flags from the Lincoln Continental that uh, JFK was shot in, that he had paid $20,000 for at auction. So I knew, I knew I was gonna get my first you know, chunk of money. And I did, we didn't get the second chunk, so it all kind of dissipated. Anyway, so now you got this script, I want you to see it living in my drawer, snoring, waiting for something to happen. And about, and this is the fun part of the story, if you're a publisher, uh, somewhere around June, maybe Ju maybe July, RFK, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., made an announcement that he was thinking about running for president. And that's fine. But then he said something that perked my ears. He said, and I have proof that the CIA killed my uncle. Well, his uncle is John F. Kennedy. And he said in the same kind of breath that he's announcing a run for president, that he had proof that the CIA killed his uncle. So that was like clue number one, you know, that got into my head. So I called my publisher and I said, hey, can we get a book out by November 22nd? Because this year is going to be the 60th anniversary. Sounds strange to say anniversary, but the 60th year since JFK was killed. So there was a challenge. He said, well, that's real fast. And I said, it's going to get faster. I said, because I got to write it. <laughs> and then I said, wait a minute. No, I got a script in the drawer. 
So if you know anything about authoring, you're supposed to have an outline. You know, if you're, well, you're either a pantser or you're an outliner. I'm a kind of a both. So I had my script, which is my outline. So I just took the script and I created a novel out of it. I made that sound real simple, but that was like four months worth of work. So we're very close now to November 22nd, the deadline, which is one of the reasons why the book will soon be in stores and everything else, because it's at least a three month lead time on this stuff. And I gave my publisher like four months to do it. So, you know, he was going crazy too. So the idea being that I have this book that's based on a movie in 1993, where a lot of my research came from. But Tom, is that the whole story? Not by a long shot. Why? Because you like to, I'm conducting my own interview here. Isn't this great? Anyway, what happened was about two months into it, a gentleman by the name of Paul Landis came forward. Paul Landis was a Secret Service agent, and he was assigned to Jacqueline Kennedy. And he and Clint Hill, the other Secret Service agent, assigned to Jacqueline. And again, when you're a Secret Service agent, it's like you have blinders on. Your, your responsibility, your protectee is Jacqueline Kennedy. That's who you look at. You don't look at anybody else. You protect her. Anyway, so Paul Landis and Clint Hill are in the motorcade in Dallas. And at the age of 80, whatever, Paul Landis came out in the middle of my writing my book and said, oh, yeah, I found the magic bullet on the back deck of the limousine. And the world stopped because the magic bullet was the key to the entire Warren Commission. In fact, they went through great pains and great gymnastics, and now here we split between people who believe the Warren Commission and people who believe everything else, the magic bullet theory, which they call the single bullet theory. And this was developed by Arlen Specter, who went on to be a senator, but at the time was a aide, a, a lawyer working for the commission. And the problem they had was they had three shots, one missed, so they had two shots. They knew one hit him in the head, so they had seven human wounds to be made by one bullet. Entering Kennedy, coming out of Kennedy, going into Connolly, coming out of Connolly, going into his wrist, coming out of his wrist, and then going into his knee or his leg. You had to do that all with one bullet. Or there had to be another shooter. Or there had to be more than three shots. And they locked themselves in from the first day. In fact, Walter Cronkite, about mm, 45 minutes after the assassination, got on TV and said, three shots rang out in Dallas today. That was it. 45 minutes, pandemonium, and Walter Cronkite already told us it was three shots. So it was kind of like they had to back reverse engineer a lot of this. So anyway, here comes Paul Landis. He blows the whole thing wide open. And I say, this is going to be a perfect storm between RFK claiming it's a CIA and Paul Landis saying, <laughs> I did the magic bullet. The whole thing is going to explode on the 60th anniversary. And I want to have my book out for then. So that was the motivation to getting the book out. Of course, in my book, I cover the Paul Landis story, and I cover the, the CIA, and I cover all of the theories that are out there. And they're all theories. And they're theories for the simple reason that today, 30 years ago, 60 years ago, 60 years from now, and 500 years from now, all we're ever going to know about the Kennedy assassination is everything we know right now, which is only two things that we know for sure about Kennedy. President died and Ruby shot Oswald. Everything else, no one knows. No one, not even the Warren Commission, no one knows. It all died. All the evidence was 
if you care, if I can go into this, is a wonderful reporter from the New York Times. And I was at the 50th anniversary of the Kennedy assassination at the New York Times Center. And they had all of the journalists who were famous now. One of the reasons why they were famous was they had Dallas on their sleeve. They were there for JFK. So Dan Rather and Ike Pappas and all of the people we see we saw on television, you know, for most of our growing up, if you're a boomer, you know, they all became famous because they were in Dallas when Kennedy got shot and made their careers. So Tom Wicker was a standard bearer for the New York Times, and he was on the stage. He told this incredible story. He said, out of the whole day, the thing that he remembered most 50 years later was the bucket, the bucket, the bucket. Outside, the, outside Parkland Hospital, while the doctors were working on the president, the Secret Service was washing down the back of the limousine. And as they rinsed the sponge and squoze it into the bucket, a stainless steel bucket, the water, and he, he, he really, this impressed him more than anything else, the water turned the most incredible shade of crimson. And the audience went, ooh, crimson. Of course, when I got to the microphone, I said, excuse me, because <laughs> you know, they had questions and answers. And I said, Mr. Wicker, while you were watching the water in the bucket, did it occur to you that they were destroying a crime scene? And they cut my mic off. <laughs> they cut my mic off. But because they washed down that limousine and a lot of other things that happened that day, including missing brains and autopsies and bungled autopsies and the doctors in Parkland saying this happened. And then a day later, the doctors in Bethesda saying, no, it didn't. It happened this way. And threatening the doctors in Dallas to not come out with the right story or their story. All this craziness ensued. But by the time JFK was in his grave with the eternal flame, all the evidence we were ever going to get was destroyed. And now it's all speculation. It's all, well, you know, if I was him, no, you're not him. Well, why would I, you can't explain it in anything that has to do with your reality because we don't have any of the evidence, we don't have any of the facts. So the whole thing is wide open. And I went around and dancing in that little pond of, you know, all the things that could be, what ifs could be, who knows, who can tell. That is so fascinating. That is incredible. I mean, I, I got to tell you, I am definitely not one to be a conspiracy theorist around the assassination of JFK. But also hearing this makes me go, well, hmm, hold on. <laughs> right? It's either, it's either nah or hmm. <laughs> yeah, like I literally, when you were talking about the 50th anniversary and everything and him talking about squeezing that crimson, I literally had the reaction you know, and, and, and for our listeners, I was on mute. And then you literally described what, how I reacted. And I was like, oh, see, I'd be one of them going, oh, you know. <laughs> yeah, it, because it's, he's waxing poetic, you know? It's like, wow, such a horrible thing. Such yeah. a devastating tragedy in the, in the nation. And here this, this trained journalist pulls out this, for lack of a better term, a rose from this manure, which yeah. is something you were talking about before in the green room, pulls it all out. And we we, had, we now have an image that 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 kind of makes it an icon, and 
we stop and say, wait a minute, that was a crime scene. And I don't know if any of you have ever seen the show, which I can't remember right now, but the show about the the guy who was a murderer, but he was a crime. He was a blood spatter Dexter. expert. Dexter, thank you. They actually, they actually, <laughs> I should remember this because the production company optioned one of my screenplays because I had something like that in one of my screenplays and they optioned me to protect them from me suing them. But anyway, yeah, blood spatter. Although it wasn't an exact science back in 1963, it would definitely shown direction of bullet, trajectory. And if you if you do anything with the Kennedy assassination, it's all about where the bullet came from. And all the evidence of that was washed away before they even declared the president dead. Because it was a moving crime scene, you know. And there was no, I mean, you know, in the 40s, the cops were walking around on eggshells in crime scenes, trying not to leave fingerprints or dust or hair or anything else. And here these guys, are law enforcement officers, Secret Service guys, are washing down the back of the limousine because LBJ told them to. You know, it's crazy, crazy stuff. And and it's it's a comedy of errors on on so many levels that that's you know. And and look, the the if you if people really care, the only thing we're left to to know is that. With two days notice, Oswald decided he was going to kill the president because it was only two days before that that they mentioned that the car was going to come by where he worked. Okay. And with 10 seconds worth of, of thought, Jack Ruby just randomly decided to walk into the garage and kill him. Okay. That's it. So you have two random acts happening, at, you know, within a three day period with absolutely no explanation. There's no way to know. And that's it. That's all you can say, because there was no unless you go into conspiracy, unless you go into there was a Russian count who was Jackie Kennedy's uncle who put Oswald in the rooming house with Ruth Payne that got him the job at the Texas School Book Depository. And that guy, Uncle Georgie, was a CIA operative from World War Two who knew George Bush and the Zapata Oil Company and yada. And you start getting nuts because there were so many connections that make no sense unless someone is drawing it on a plan, on a sheet. Why did this guy go there? And why did this happen? And how did that happen? And how did Dorothy Kilgallen get killed? Dorothy Kilgallen, what are we talking about here? Dorothy Kilgallen, she was writing a book for Random House. You remember What's My Line, Bennett Surf? You know, he was one of the guys on What's My Line. For all you kids out there, that was a, that was a television quiz show, kind of like America's Got Talent without the singing. Anyway, so you had all this strange stuff circulating around now rob reiner has just put out a whole podcast on the men who killed kennedy there's a thousands and thousands of videos online believe me i went through half of them in research and it's just a fascinating subject because there's so many tentacles this in fact if you go to asknotbook.com asknotbook.com that's where you can get my book but we're running a, a little contest as well and i i created a 14 page mini ebook and it's called tom's top 10 conspiracy theories okay jfk conspiracy theories and i have 10 of them in there and the cover has marilyn monroe on it so it just is attractive but it's an it's kind of a companion read-along piece but i'm also offering it free so if anybody would like a copy of it just email me and that's tom at author.nyc tom at author.nyc and I will send you back a PDF of this little mini thing 
that has Tom's top 10 JFK conspiracies. And there's one more, there's an 11th one, which is extra credit. And if you, when you get it, you'll know why. Anyway, enough of the commercial, back to our show. I love all that. See, this is what makes this book and this subject so fascinating, though, because you can keep going down the rabbit hole and you can keep discovering new things. And exactly. it's just so much fun. Now, I'm curious to know, with your book, Ask Not, is there a message or a thought that you hope the readers take away from it? It is a, a commercial fiction book. And in commercial fiction, you try not to preach too much or teach too much, but it's okay to slip in a couple of you know ideas and concepts. You know, Believe it or not, one of the concepts that I slip in is about brotherly love, about the older brother protecting the younger brother, about guilt between siblings, when one brother exceeds, uh, you know, excels, and the other brother, you know, kind of is doesn't have those tools. This is driven by guilt in the part of our main character. I mean, it's a human story. This is not all about JFK. I mean, this is about, you know, book is something happens to someone. In my book, something happens to Hank Larson, and everything else ensues. So it's brotherly love is, is a big part of that. Casual sex <laughs> came up big. I didn't realize this. My beta readers came back to me and said, yeah, there's a lot of sex in this book. I'm like, really? I didn't think I put a lot of sex in the book. But what they meant was there was a lot of this fun sex in the book where people, you know, just have a great time and there's no recrimination or anything else. And, you know, two adults choosing to do what they want to do. I put it in there as a break between the tension, which... I guess that's what sex is, if you think about it. But anyway, I put it in the book, and the comment was, there's a lot of sex in this book. And I went, really? Anyway, and then the last thing is that there is no real story behind JFK. It is all random. I, I've cherry-picked what I needed to make a book. You can go in and cherry-pick something else and make your own book. That's the beauty of something that has absolutely no iconoclast truth to it, has no... There's not one eyewitness that saw Oswald with the gun in the window. Not one. I mean, that's, you know, his whole case is circumstantial. So you can do whatever you want. He was in the lunchroom. You know, there was another guy there. He, here's a funny little thing. The assassin in the uh, sniper's nest had his lunch waiting for the president. We found chicken bones and a Dr. Pepper. Well... Oswald was not of the ethnicity in those days to drink Dr. Pepper. I know that sounds weird, <laughs> but it was a more of an ethnic drink, okay? So highly unlikely that an Oswald who was found drinking a Coke in the lunchroom 90 seconds after the assassination was drinking a Dr. Pepper with his fried chicken lunch. Little things like that bug you. <laughs> <laughs> because the guy who did have the lunch was on the fifth floor eating his sandwich. And he said, yeah, that was my chicken sandwich and my Dr. Pepper on the fifth floor, not the sixth. Where do you go with that? How do you, how do you, you know, 60 years later, a minute later, 20 minutes later, when, when, you know, Mary, Marion Baker was the patrolman who rushed into the building and ran to the second floor and opened the lunchroom. And there was Oswald like, with the echoes of the shots hadn't, you know, dissipated, bouncing around Dealey Plaza. It was maybe within 90 seconds. Some people say, you know, 60 seconds. The uh, cop runs in, pulls his gun on, on Oswald, 
And a guy named Roy Truly, who was the manager of the building, says, that's okay, he works here. And Marion Parry goes, oh, okay. Who else would shoot the president but somebody that works there? <laughs> what they expect, some guy to walk in from somewhere else and shoot the president, right? And, and the, the patrolman goes, oh, okay, and goes on. And then the woman coming down the stairs, there's a book called Woman on the Stairs, woman coming down the stairs claims, I never saw Roswell go up and down the stairs because I was going down. It just gets you nuts. It gets you 100% nuts because it's like, hmm, nah, hmm, nah. You do that all day long with this thing. That's why it's a great book. Did he just say it's a great book? Yeah, some phrase stinks. I know it, but that's what I said. No, but like it hooks you in because again, it makes you, it creates that doubt and we don't, I think we as humans just don't like doubt. We want certainty. And so the fact that we, I mean, if you grew up with this, especially I would say a generation who didn't live through this, you are taught like, this is what happened. These are the facts. And to have something that can be injected into it that casts reasonable doubt that you can't just be like, well, that's nuts. That's a crazy thing, you know, kind of like people... Uh, I'll come out and say it, kind of like flat earthers, you know? Yes. No matter the amount of evidence, you're like, clearly the earth is round. They're still like, no, it's flat. When you get legit, reasonable doubt that gets put in, like you've been talking to, to us about, it makes you go, well, wait a minute. No, but this goes against everything that I've already learned. How can what you're saying be true, even if it makes sense? Wait a minute. And then you find yourself starting to go down that that hole and start to question things and start putting things together yourself. And you start to wonder, well, what really is true? And it's such a weird feeling for us as a human, but to me, that's some of the best stories. It's some of the best plays, books, what have you, when you start to question things, because it forces you to seek out that knowledge and determine what you believe, you know? So that's, I love it. I love it. I can't wait to to read this and to to share my ideas about what happened listen i'd love you to uh, share it with me everybody out there when you read the book you know get i gave you my email tom at author.nyc get me man you know tell me what you think i mean look people are gonna say that's stupid that guy wasn't there this you know it's gonna be crazy i know it it's a it's a it's a whole thing but i hope everybody understands that nothing matters about this it doesn't change anything whether the government did it intentionally, whether the government, a small group of, of crazies in the government did it, whether it was one guy who decided on a Thursday night to go home and get his rifle and come back Friday morning, which was uncharacteristic because he always went home on Friday, not Thursday, and decided to shoot the president because he read in the paper the day before that the president was coming by. Doesn't matter. Nothing changes. There's only two things we know about the Kennedy assassination. The president's dead and Ruby shot Oswald, period. So everything they taught you in school, that was Emmis, that was truth, was just the same speculation as any crazy theorist will tell you. It was moon people, because Kennedy said we were going to the moon and they didn't want their environment polluted by humans. So the moon people came down and you know, you'll get that, you'll yeah. get that. Yeah. You know, and, and in that same beat, in that same beat, you'll get a picture of Lee Harvey Oswald at 15 years old in a air cadet wing of the Civil Air Patrol with his troop master, David Ferry, 
at 15 in New Orleans. There's Lee Harvey Oswald and David Ferry. David Ferry was a pilot who flew for the CIA. David Ferry was a key figure in the Kennedy assassination. And here he is with, he also had a tendency to like young boys. He was a map. Uh, and there was Lee Harvey Oswald at 15 years old. Now, there's commission testimony that this is absolutely nothing to do with anything. There's no connection here. Or the guy was CIA, he's a 15 year old kid. He then goes into the Marines. He then gets a super sensitive spot in a, in a station in Japan, uh, checking on the U-2 spy plane. He goes to Russia and all of a sudden we shoot down the U-2 spy plane. And then he's allowed back into the United States and James Hosting, an FBI agent, does a whole 302 on him, and his boss tells him to rip it up a week before the assassination. What's going on here? How would anybody, how would anybody who denounces citizenship went to during the Cold War? Let's remember, we're talking about they're gonna kill us, we're gonna kill them. Duck and cover, get under your desk, kiss your ass goodbye. That's what we're talking about here. And we all lived it. We lived under the nuclear sword of Damocles. And those Russians were going to kill us, and we were going to kill them. Period. And he's a guy who comes back from Russia, having already, you know, denounced the country. He's a communist lover. Oh, that was a big problem. If you, if you go to the Wade, the DA Henry Wade, had a midnight press conference. Too interesting. Do you want to talk about this? I'm sorry. Do you want to go into this? <laughs> okay. DA Henry Wade, on the night of the assassination, they call it the midnight press conference. He's like, we got one Lee Harvey Oswald in custody here. And uh, is he a member of any right wing group? You know, is he a right winger? Which is all, all what the news people are asking. Why? Because that day, the John Birch Society, which is a right wing group, put an ad in the paper that was a kind of like death sentence to the president. There were posters all over town called wanted for treason for Kennedy. They hated Kennedy, okay? So of course, if he gets killed in Dallas, it had to be our right wing brothers in Dallas. And when Wade says, no, no, he was, he was a member of the Give, Give Cuba a Break Committee. And then somebody says, fair play for Cuba. And he said, oh, right, fair play for Cuba. Thanks, Jack. Well. Fair Play for Cuba was a communist, a pro-communist organization supporting Fidel Castro, not a right-wing deal. And that was a problem. So the other part of the problem was Jack, who corrected Henry Wade on Lee Harvey Oswald, a name nobody knew at 12.30 p.m. that afternoon, that Lee Harvey Oswald was in the Fair Play for Cuba committee, and the district attorney, who's a smart man and a lawyer who heard that an hour before, couldn't remember it, but somehow Jack Ruby in the bottom of the Texas Police Department was able to correct the Dallas DA to the correct name of the organization, the communist organization that Oswald belonged to. How would he know that? Well, obviously, when Oswald was on TV handing out literature for the Fair Play for Cuba Committee, everybody saw it. It was only on TV in New Orleans. It was a local story in New Orleans. Nobody in Dallas, much less a strip club owner, saw a broadcast from Dallas. No cable, local station, terrestrial broadcast, maximum signal, maybe 25 miles. 
long way to Dallas. How did he know that? The same guy who was in the precinct that night. Hi, Jack, says the DA. And then the next day, two days later, he waltzes in, nobody stops him, and he shoots the guy. Hmm. You getting the hmm here? <laughs> oh, my gosh. It goes all the way to the top. <laughs> this will drive you crazy. You go nuts listening oh. to this thing. second part of our interviews we love to give our listeners a chance to get to know our guests and i know we're short on time but i cannot let you leave without asking my favorite question to our guest which is what is your favorite theater memory the the matron in the allenton avenue theater who <laughs> came around with the flashlight when we were trying to kiss your girlfriend that theater but i'm sure that's not what you're asking the <laughs> that was in the bronx by the way well you know i direct stage and I, i'm a director and my greatest moments are the interactions I've had with my cast and my crew. So I see it from a different perspective. I've sat in the seat. I've watched many, many great works and, and honest works. But you kind of, I kind of look at them forensically, you know? I'm, it kind of like ruins it for me. It's like I can't watch a movie without saying, oh, the camera didn't do that or the focus is off or, you know, why would you put a telephoto shot there? You know, it just destroys it, you know? So my, my fond memories are the plays I've directed, the great playwrights I've worked with, the cast, the, the people, the commitment. I had, I had one experience during rehearsals that the lead actor got sick. He was out for weeks. And every member of the cast who wasn't in the scene played him for blocking and for, for, the, for the read. And when he came back to hugs and applause, he sat in that chair and he watched the entire play and all the blocking with different people playing his part. So it was like you could see a movie of the play. And to me, that was a real act of love. I mean, actors, you know, they could be competitive. There's a lot of, you know, a lot of raw egos going on. There's a, there's a lot of emotions, you know, and for an actor, even though they're acting, their emotions are at full play, their hearts pumping, they're there, they're in it. And it's unbridled. And even at that, to have that love, to have that respect for the other actors was amazing. That was my favorite moment in theater when he was able to sit there and watch the entire play happen in front of him, blocking it all, and see his part and his role. And one step further, he, when he had a question about that scene, that actress or actor would say, no, 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 the, put the cup down first, then, you know, oh, right. <laughs> and it was great. I had like, you know, I had 12, you know, assistant directors at that point. It was fabulous. So that, those are my, my theater memories, you know. In terms of Broadway, I'm a sucker. I love it all. <laughs> I go there and I'm, uh, you know, I mean, I, I try and switch off, but God, those people are fantastic. And, you know, you, you say to yourself, this, this, this person on the stage here, the, li the lineage it took to get here, to be the top of their profession, to be in, a good friend of mine, it was in uh, Phantom. And he'd been in Phantom for a long time. 
and he, uh, I had my nieces with me. They were interested in theater. So we went on the stage and we went backstage and, you know, under and over and the traps and it was fantastic. I was like a kid. I knew everything about it, but I was like a kid. You know, we had a great time. So yeah, theater is an amazing, amazing, amazing art form. And we're so blessed to have it here in New York as the, to me, the epicenter of theater in the world, you know. And, you know, beginning of movies, they all came, you know, they went to Agnes DeMille and said, you know, we'd like to have your son, John. And she said, well, John's busy, but Cecil's not doing anything. And they said, okay, we'll take Cecil. So Cecil B. DeMille became the biggest director in Hollywood because of New York theater. I love those memories. And I want t-shirts made of like New York, epicenter of theater. Like absolutely, that needs to be done. So thank you for sharing those memories. Those are wonderful. Thank you for, for eliciting them from me. It's, it's, I feel good just even remembering that. Just two last questions. My first, you kind of alluded to in the beginning. Uh, are there any other projects or productions you have coming in the pipeline that we might be able to plug for you? You hinted at another book that's in the oven right now that we can smell coming together. Yes, hold on. It's almost, it's baking right now. It's called Wife and Death. And Wife and Death is a thriller about a woman who makes a mistake a year before abortion becomes legal. And it plagues her until she's 70 years old. And it has to do with Colombian drug cartels and her first husband who just married her for the green card because he needed to operate in this country, man, and stuff she didn't know about and a quarter of a billion dollars in her name and suddenly makes her the target of not only the CIA, the FBI, but the mob and the cartel. And she's all alone. So that's my book, Wife and Death, and it is killer. It's amazing. And she just rises to the occasion at every turn and it's a i love it i think it's she's i have some great female characters you know i went to hollywood once and i said i want to do this film and i had a female character and i said you're crazy i said what nobody's buying films of female characters this is a while back i said why not i said well you can't sell them and you know what he was right all those wonderful female stars in movies mostly had to produce it to get it done and in Hollywood producing it means they dropped their million dollar quote and they just did it for their sag rate and they became a producer. And that's what allowed the movie to go. So they had to give a lot for the, for the opportunity to be on the stage and make us all feel what they made us feel. Horrible, absolutely horrible. So of course I never learned my lesson. So I keep writing books with female <laughs> leads in it. Um, and, and if you got another second, the interesting thing is I don't write a thriller with a character that's a man, and then at the end just change the name. I really try to write the woman from the ground up. And to that end, when I first decided to do this, I went to a Foley stage in Manhattan that I've used for movies. They had a pair of size 14 women's pumps. And I put my feet in them and I tried to walk around. If you know anything about a Foley stage, there's a gravel pit and there's a wood floor and there's a linoleum floor and there's sand. There's all these soundy, crunchy sounds that you're supposed to relay sound effects into a movie called Foley. But they prop men wear these big women's shoes. So I tried them on. It wasn't pretty. But my first book is infused with Louboutins and, and uh, Potus, all this stuff. <laughs> you know? And my, my, my publisher called me and said, 
you got a shoe fetish? I said, no, no, not at all. I, said, I just wanted to re- literally build the character from the ground up. So what happens is there could be a bang, bang. There could be a shoot em up. There could be a punch. It's in the aftermath, the difference between a man and a woman. The motivation is different, okay? And that, to me, makes for a successful female character in a thriller where you wouldn't want necessarily to think a female character in the lead of a thriller would be a good idea. It is if she's true to her femininity, to her nurturing, to her sensibilities, to the reason why the reason why they're women. You know, you got to bring it in the book. And that's that's what I've had success doing in my previous books, which are number one bestsellers with Brooke Burrell. And what hopefully his next book, Wife and Death, will bring to the bring to the world a, a solid female who meets adversity head on, got chops and uses them. That is fantastic. I love that. I can't wait to to see it released. I can't wait to read it. This sounds amazing. And a great lead into my final question, which is if our listeners want more information about Ask Not or about you, maybe they'd like to reach out to you. How can they do so? You've you've dropped two already, Tom at author.nyc and asknotbook.com. Are there any other ways that people can get information or reach out? Buy me dinner. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> well, this is a tough one. It's a Tom. <laughs> this is tough. Avitabile. Put it on the screen for the podcast. Yes, put in the notes, uh, tomavitabile.com. It's my site. I wish my name was shorter. <laughs> in fact, John Lascraw, if you look at his name, it's Lascraw Art on his books, but it's French kind of thing, Lascraw. I met him when I first started out as an author, and he said, hey, kid, you want to make $10 million more? I said, yeah. He said, change your name. <laughs> he was right, <laughs> because it's Avatabile, right? And I get all iterations of it. But if you could put it in the whatever goes below a podcast.com, uh, that's a good way to, to reach out to me. And, and in a couple of days, there'll be another way. But the podcast will be over by then. Wonderful. Well, Tom, thank you so much for stopping by and just sharing everything today. This has been a blast. I wish we could just keep going on and on. I mean, I have so many thoughts and questions. We'll have to have you back, especially with your next book coming out. So I appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. Thank you for the opportunity to talk to people and, and, and thank you for your enthusiasm. I mean, it, you really made this really easy and, and you've got quite a talent. God bless you. Thank you so much. My guest today has been the author, screenwriter, film director, producer, thought provoker, man wearing a thousand and one hats, Tom Avitabale, whose new book, Ask Not, is available right now on Amazon. But keep your eye out your local bookshop. It's going to be there very soon. He's got several other works published, and he's got a great new book coming out as well. If you want to reach out to him or find out more information about him, you can do so by emailing him at tom at author.nyc. Check out his book, asknotbook.com, or check more information about him at his website, tomavitabile.com. All of this information is going to be posted on our episode description as well as on our social media posts. But join us in getting your copy of Ask Not 
dive into the world of conspiracy thrillers, really have a great time investigating the assassination of JFK. This is a wonderful book. We can't wait to read it. We want to hear your thoughts. Share your thoughts with Tom. Make sure you check it out right now. Ask Not, available on Amazon.com. So until next time, I'm Andrew Cortez reminding you to turn off your cell phones, unwrap your candies, and keep talking about the theater. In a stage whisper. Thank you. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review, like, and subscribe. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Stage Whisper Pod. And feel free to reach out to us with your comments and personal stories at stagewhisperpod at gmail.com. And be sure to check out our website for all things Stage Whisper and theater. You'll be able to find merchandise, tours, tickets, and more. Simply visit stagewhisperpod.com. Our theme song is Maniac by Jazzar. Other music on this episode provided by Jazzar and Billy Murray. You can also become a patron of our show by logging on to patreon.com slash stagewhisperpod. There you will find all the information about our backstage pass as well as our tip jar. Thank you so much for your generosity. We could not do this show without you.